And now, and now, the best of Pete Price. The best of Pete Price. On Radio City 96.7 and City Talk 105.9. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, imagine this. That's the title of a book, but imagine this. I am sitting opposite John Lennon's sister. And we're going to tell a story. We're going on a journey. Julia Baird is with me. The book is here, growing up with brother John Lennon. And I would never have thought in a million years that I would be sitting here. And I am so flattered and I'm so delighted. And I'm so pleased that in your very, very busy life you can spend some time with us. Julia, thank you very much for coming in. Well, thank you. I actually invited myself, so thank you for having me. <laughs> First of all, a resemblance in you and uh, John is quite startling. Yes, I mean, we shared a mother, but both John and my younger sister and myself uh, must have been strong genes in yeah. that side of the family. Who is Julia? Who are you? Tell me. Wow. I'm the daughter of my mother, who is another Julia, mother of three children, partner of Roger, Owner of two cats at the moment. Musical? No, no. Really? Not at all? <laughs> wow. Not at all? No, no, no. I twang around on the guitar badly. I play the violin also badly. Um, I applied for the Merseyside Youth Orchestra many years ago and was told to go away and come back next year, so the violin went away. <laughs> no, I am not a gifted musician. I love music. I love to listen to it. Um, I'm in a singing group, but only because I'm part of a group. There's no way that I'm um, a solo vo voice. Now, my sister, my younger sister, has a beautiful singing voice. Yeah. It's interesting that, that you are that honest. It's lovely that you're honest. It's refreshing because you're, not one, of these, yeah, but you're not one of these people that says, oh, yes, I'm going to make it. Well, I wish you'd tell Jordan, Katie Price, that she can't sing. No, the point I'm making is you could, yeah. you could be a lady that could have made money on the back of your brother. I, I just laugh if people say, can you sing? I'll tell you the best one for that. Um, in New York, many years ago, I went to see Sarah Vaughan. I love mm. this sort of singing before she died, and I feel very privileged to have seen her. Uh, the Blue Note. And we went in, and I have to say that it was one of those, it was one of the few occasions where I had to go in as John's sister to get a ticket because it had sold out months in advance so we were sitting on this front table with a star on it and champagne all very nice stuff waiting for her to come on she was at the bar drinking heavily before she came on and she came straight over to me before she got on the stage and she looked at me and she said do you sing <laughs> and i went no and she said do you play then I said no, and it was like my useless creature. And she said, I guess I'll have to do it all myself. <laughs> so I don't sing and I don't play. And you have a great taste in music if you like Sarah Vaughan. I love, yeah, I, love I love your style. Yeah, um, I've recently been to see Buddy Greco. Uh, oh, wow. And yeah. Tony Bennett. So we're on the same <laughs> wavelength musically. Um, where do you live now? Cheshire. So have you always stayed around? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Apart from a few years in Ireland, I've lived in France, um, studying, but and I've spent two years in India working for Save the Children. But 
my home has I've never moved away from the north of England. I love the mountains, the mm. lakes and the sea too much. You know, when people talk about the Beatles moving away, I, I used to get quite cross about it because Silla's a mate of mine. I know Jerry. I know people like this. I know a lot of the boys. Mm. They had to move away because it was their job. You know, Epstein, uh, their manager, who was amazing and helped to build their career fantastically, had to move them to London because the, the nucleus the of... Yes, of course. And people on. used to annoy me when they used to say, oh, they've left the city. and yeah. But they never left mentally. Well, in actual fact... Um... Many children become students at 18, don't they? And certainly did in our day and moved across the country to a university. Now with um, money being tighter and everything, a lot of students stay at home that would never have stayed at home when we were young. We couldn't get away fast enough, could we, to burn the midnight oil? We weren't allowed to stay up all night and use the house as our party base. We had to go away and get a bed sit to do that, didn't we, to sort the world's problems out at four o'clock in the morning. We couldn't be at home doing it. Um, John actually didn't leave home until November 1963 when he was 23. Had he have been a student, he would have gone at 18. So, you know, it wasn't a young thing. He wasn't an mm. early adolescent when he left home. None but this is a scouse mentality, you know. We, we put you where you were and you left us, you know. Because yeah. I remember... In the days of the cavern, I remember them saying over uh, Love Me Do, uh, don't buy it because we don't want them to leave. You know, don't make it a hit because the world will oh, know. I mean, right. I was part of that. It, it was amazing because I, I mean, I, I used to queue, sag off school and queue and go and watch. Mm. Well, the George lads. famously didn't want to leave, did he? He was the last one mm. to actually uh, take up residence in England, um, sorry, in London. And he was still going up and down on the train after all the others, the, the other three, had mm. made the move. What made you write the book? Well, it's not the first book, as I'm sure you know. The very first time I wrote was a handwritten epistle that my friend and I published ourselves. Um, and that was in response to five years after John died, 1985, the BBC put on a programme and it was an Everyman production, you know, well-respected BBC dramas. And I watched it with my two elder children, knowing that their friends the next day would have watched it in school. They were teenagers then. So we put the youngster to bed, watched this programme, and it was so wrong that I was devastated, completely devastated. It didn't mention Cynthia at all, didn't mention Julian at all. This is John's life story. My mother was some... Uh, flimsy bit that flew across the screen and it was just so wrong and could never have been done five years before when John was alive. And so, he would have been angry, I presume? Well, it could never have happened. Yeah. It wouldn't have happened for him to be angry at because they couldn't have done it. Yeah. So I phoned the Liverpool Echo, being a Liverpudlian, and said I'd like to say what the real story was and um, a fellow called Bill Smithies came to see me. I don't know if you remember him, but he was the news editor. Uh, and um, he came over and said, you've got a real story here. And I said, well, I know I have, but I didn't think I had. I thought I just had the family story. I didn't realise that everybody else was thinking something completely off the wall. Um, so I hand wrote this book and it was pre-copyright days of photographs. I mean, the photographs belong to me and Stan. We took them all. You know, I don't care who says they've got copyright off them. We took them. Um, so we printed all these photographs and everything. And I came to Liverpool because I'd heard that there were two boys, 
lads who were having a day in the Adelphi and I might be able to do something with it. That's where I met Bill and Dave of the Cavern. Went there, wrote another book from that first book, which was only 20 pages of handwriting. It was just to put the basics of the story right. Wrote the first book, My Brother John. And this is the update because I now know as much probably as I will ever know or even want to know about the story. And that's because my mother's sister lived until 1997 and they had stonewalled us about the truth of what had gone on forever. But as this particular aunt, Nanny, who lived in Rock Ferry over the water, as she was nearing the end of her life, and I spent lots of time with her, not for any other reason, that, but other than I loved her and I spent time with her, she started to talk. And she told me about our grandparents, or her childhood, how she'd been affected, Every, everything to do with the family, including my mother, John, all the things that we'd had bits about. And it was like she was putting the jigsaw together for me. And after she died, I wrote the book. The play that recently was on, played by Christopher Eccleston, did you watch it? I didn't. Do you know, I knew it was on. Roger and I went out for a meal. I find them upsetting because... You heard about it, though? Yes, oh, yes. A lot of people were stunned and shocked by it. Well, you'll have to tell me because this sounds Well, ridiculous. I didn't watch it because I, I didn't want to watch it. No, I just saw a couple of reviews that were quite unkind, but that's nothing surprising to me. And I just can't put myself through the agony of watching something that I think that how many millions of people, exaggeration, are watching this. And a picture speaks a thousand words. I'm a teacher. I know this. <laughs> They don't bother reading books. They don't. They, they won't think. Oh, John's sister wrote a book. I'll go and read it. They just watch that drama that's on and think, oh, that's the story. So I can't bear to watch them because I'm expecting to find that it's not the right story. I'm talking to Julia, and I've got the book in front of me. Imagine this. Um, who was John Lennon? Oh wow. Who was John? He was a the child of my mother and his own father, Alf Lennon. They'd been married a fair time before they actually... Uh, they'd been together for ten years before they got married. So it wasn't a shotgun wedding or anything like that. And Alf went away to sea. And he was one of the many, many babies that must have had a similar family set up in Liverpool where Dad was at sea. How many men were at sea in one way or another. My grandfather was a, a sailmaker on the tall ships and he only came home to leave another baby behind and they had seven children, five surviving. Which was girls. the way of life in those days. Way of life. And my mother saw it about to happen to her and she wanted Alf when John was two and a half. She said, don't go back to sea, stay at home, we've got a house, let's be a family. And Alf said, I can't do this and I'm a seaman and this is my life and I'm going back to sea. And I think my mother saw her own mother's future in front of her, a child every two or three years. And so John became, for many years, an only child until my mother um, had an older sister and then me and then my younger sister. Did he have a gift years ago? 
I mean, do, was it was it a gift that I mean, every parent says, "My child, you want to hear a sing? Oh, you want to yeah. hear him there?" But did he have a gift? Gift? Were you aware of something? Well, I've been asked this before. We were what we were aware of was that my mother was gifted, even when we were young. She played the banjo, the piano accordion, the ukulele, the piano. She sang. My father and her did Latin American dancing. She was a woman out of her own time. I mean, she could have taken to the stage herself. Um, and she taught John these things. She taught him, she taught him not the guitar, but she taught him the banjo, and I well remember them. It's in the book how I describe her standing over him one minute doing the, the finger work and the next minute doing the fret work, making John do it again and again and again and slowing down records so he could repeat it. Uh, that'll be the day, that'll be the day, that'll be the day. And John says, my mother, it was my mother that turned me on to all this. So my mother was certainly gifted in the music, drama, sense of things. And I think if she passed it on to any of the children, it was to John. So John was sketching and writing and, and trying to play music from a very early age. My mother used to write with a... Uh, a black calligraphic pen, just those black ink things at that time, with Indian ink. And she would draw for us and make us books and do the drawings herself. And one of John's childhood friends lives in Denmark now and recently sent me your mother's pen and I recognised it straight away. She bought them all in Garston Market. She used to buy these packets of pens and it was a princess pen, black and gold, and I have it now, I can't believe it. He said, I've been looking after it for you for years. So she taught John to do the drawing, but obviously he was gifted, because she did it with me, and I'm not gifted. And she did it with my sister, and she's not gifted. But John was able to take it up. And I think he was 12, and it's recorded that John said, I don't know if there's such a thing as a genius, but if there is, then I am one. <laughs> so there we are. Which, of course, he was famous for making comments like yeah. that, especially <laughs> about especially about Jesus. <laughs> oh, <don't. laughs> that was that was the biggest one, wasn't it? That, that really was. was. But we'll talk about that later. Bit of a faux pas. When, was he a violent person? I wanna, so what I want to do today is I want to try and break the myths. We hear all the stories, and I, I want to be perfectly honest about this, but I certainly don't want to slag him off, but I want to know these things. Was he a violent person? Not to me. No. I never saw any violence in John. I've read what you've read. I've read about the infamous lost weekend, the 18 months or whatever it was that he spent in Los Angeles, um, drinking copious amounts of liquid, which apparently included um, too much coffee at one point, didn't it? Because well, that can send you a bit bananas as well. I mean, heaven knows what was going on there. He had the steadying influence of Mei Pang, and then he had a lot of... Um, I suppose, in my book, I've said in that weekend, because you're talking about violence, and I'm talking about John being as an erupting force at that time, that it was probably the first time in his life that he'd been free, completely free. He'd had my mother, then he'd had Mimi, then he'd had Cynthia, then he'd had Yoko, and suddenly he was catapulted off into the blue and had freedom, real freedom, for the first time, and accountability, if you like. And in that time, there may have been um, fighting episodes, 
I'm saying may have been. It was in the papers, wasn't it? It was recorded. But he also um, got in touch with his um, other inner self, which was to get Julian across. He hadn't seen Julian for a time. Re-established a relationship with his his first son. Well, Sean wasn't born then. But he re-established re a relationship with Julian, which was a beautiful thing to do and a very right thing to do, a recognition that he had, certainly hadn't done enough. And I would say Mei Pang probably is responsible for pushing him in that direction, but um, he certainly took it up. So. And Julian's definitely got the family look. <laughs> hasn't he? Hasn't he just? Just yeah. a bit, just yeah. a bit. Yeah. Um, how important were the women in John's life? I mean, did each one teach him a lesson or did each one he oh. take for from them? Well, I think women were very important. Um, when I said before, my grandparents had seven children, Henry and Charlotte, who are buried in the cathedral grounds here, the Anglican Cathedral, died, both of them in um, early, early, early infancy. And then after that, they had five surviving girls. And I've described, I've done my best to describe them. And they were all a bit um, out of their time, if you like. A bit like John. A bit like John. And John, myself, my sister... My cousins, Leela, Stanley, David and Michael, seven of us, were all the products of these women and were all, um, were all a, bit, a bit determined, if you like. We're a bit determined in rebellion. So there were five sisters and they were in an enormously strong cohort. And when their father, known as Pop to everybody, was at sea... I suppose, with their grandmother, with their mother, our grandmother, uh, they had an all-female establishment, didn't they? And when Pop came home, when he retired and decided to come back, and he was um, a tugboat master then for the rest of his career, uh, I think I said in the book he rocked the all-girl establishment. Mimi and Pop never got on. Well, she was the eldest girl, and suddenly he came back and expected her to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. He had each of the sisters um, locked into a, this is who you are, and this is, you're saying, who are you? Mm. He had each of them locked into what he thought they were. And my mother happened to be his favourite, his out-and-out favourite. When, with the women in his life... <clears throat> Were they cruel to him? Were they, did they love him? Did did he push them away? Did he, I'm, I'm trying to find out who he was, the basis, because of course this youth is where some of his music came from. Yes, this is where his words came from. Yeah. So I'm trying to find the picture of where it actually came from. Well, um, I think most, if not all, of John's songs are an autobiography. If you, I was speaking to. Do someone. you relate to them? Do you yeah. go? Oh my goodness! Well, oh, that's it's my family. Yeah, it's it's yeah, my family yeah, too. Yeah. Absolutely, of course. So I each do. time a song came out, you went, listen to this one. Um, I listen to the words, but sometimes I get the words out. You know, when you have a a CD or a whatever, and you get it, and it's a little booklet, words, yeah. and I read it more as poetry because I think John was a poet. Some was good and some was bad, but that's all individual taste, isn't it? Um, and I see it and I think, oh, yeah, I know where you're coming from. Oh, yes, I can see where you're coming from. And I would say to anyone, if you're a John fan, apart from listening, where you get 
either happiness or anguish or whatever you get in John's voice as you can. Um, do read the words. Just read it as a, a poem, if you like. And you will get John. If you read from the beginning, you will get John. You will get his life, what he was up to, what he was doing, even where he was going in some cases. What was your relationship with John? Well, once he went to America, we all lost touch with John because famously he didn't come back. I've got to stop you. Is that because of Yoko? Did she stop them? Or was that? We've got to find out this. Well, I don't know. Right. The, the, right. the first thing, I didn't know anything about a green card. My sister and I, David, Michael, Leela, Stanley, the other cousins, the seven of us that are our generation, including John, we're all very naive. We truly are naive. We, things are happening, I feel, and I'm sure everybody's the same. In some ways, I haven't been born yet because things are happening in front of my nose and I don't recognise them until somebody says, and I think, oh, yeah. And then in other ways, I'm a million years old. I've been there, done that a billion times, and please, I cannot do this again. So in this case, I knew nothing about a green card. I didn't even realise that John had been addicted in 1969, 70 and 71 until it was already happening. I didn't know. I really didn't know. Is there something in me um, that just doesn't want to know these things? I don't know. But the green card business... I think families are like that. I think families hear things, whether you're famous or not, you hear things about your child, no, not my child, and you put it to the side. Yeah. I mean, I'm a gay man, and when my mother found out I was gay, we never talked about it again. So it was there, but it... it so I understand exactly yeah. what you mean. All yeah. of a sudden, these were revelations you were hearing. Ab they, absolutely, that you've got it. They, they were total re revelations, and you've got to sit back and sort of digest this and... Um, I was hearing more about it in, he's in recovery now. Like, from what? What? <laughs> <laughs> from what, for God's sake? And when John phoned us in 1974, which he did, I call... Out of the blue? Out of the blue, completely. I call John and Yoko the Romeo and Juliet of rock and roll. Now, I won't have been the first to say it, but that's what I was thinking of. Now, you've just totally destroyed my image now of Ozzy and Sharon, but that's fine. <laughs> oh, please, please. They weren't Ozzy and Sharon. Yeah. I wouldn't even put Yoko in that. Um, uh, but it was over. Let's stop there. I've got to ask you about the call. When it rang, did you, did you answer the call? No, uh, no. It came through one of the sisters. It right. came through one of the sisters. Right, so... The big love affair was over, wasn't it? And it was probably over, again, long before I certainly knew about it. it now it seems that um, they got married in 1969 in Gibraltar, didn't they? It was 1969. I think yeah. it was right, yeah. yeah. And according to some um, some schools of thought, it was over by Christmas. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But certainly by 1971, 72, you know, the, the big romance bit seemed to be over well it had to be for him to go off to los angeles didn't it and he when he then he got in touch with julian and julian was going to stay with him and then back in the dakota by whichever means he got back there um 
he started to phone around the family and he phoned my aunt in Edinburgh, Stan's mother, and said, where are the girls? I want to get in touch with the girls. Now, my sister and I have always been the girls, the Dolly sisters, the girls. We used to sing sisters <laughs> to entertain people. And he wanted to get So you did have a party. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't. I, I hid behind my sister singing. Right. She sings like an angel. <laughs> Truly, my sister sings like... She doesn't sing, but she sings like an angel. I never got that bit. So John wanted to see where he the girls He wanted the girls. He wanted the girls. So I'm living over in Wallasey and I'm dealing with the two elder children that I had at the time. I didn't have my third son then. And got a phone call from my aunt and she said, are you sitting down, Julia? And I said, well, I'm cooking dinner. Are you all right? Because she'd not long been to see me. Um, and we bought this great big old house over in Wallasey that had been in flats and we'd restored it and down by the sea and it was really lovely. But we'd, had, we'd got no money left and she came down and she had this huge house, quite similar, up in Edinburgh. And she looked around, and the next thing is, she sent all her beautiful velvet curtains. She was just fabulous. They all arrived by Red Star Delivery, and we put them straight up in the house. So we'd not long seen her. And she phoned and said, have you got all the curtains up? And I said, yes, we have. They're all up there. Absolutely beautiful, thank you. Um, she said, well, John wants to speak to you. I said, John who? Uh, no, 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 no. I said, and about time too. Yeah. And about time too. So she said, he's going to phone you. No, he isn't. Did I phone him? I phoned him. She gave me the number and I phoned him. Uh, and I had to wait till after midnight. And I knew there was a time distance, but because I wasn't used to phoning people in America, you know, I wasn't even aware until then that it was five hours to New York and stuff like that. I mean, this is back in 1974. It didn't mean anything to me. But I knew I had to wait, so I did, phoned. Spoke to a secretary for what seemed like about ten minutes about who I was and where I was and how I was. And in the end, I said, oh, look... I'm going. I said, I'm John's sister and I've been asked to phone this number and I've been asked to phone after midnight and I'm doing all these things and I'm not doing any more. And she said, I've just got one more question, please. And I said, what's that? She said, what's your father's middle name? I said, Albert. And John cut in straight away and said, I'm so sorry about all that. I said, I cannot believe it. So that's how we start, started the phone call. <laughs> Great conversation. <laughs> My brother and I've just been interrogated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he said... You've no idea how many sisters mm. I've got. I said, oh, John, I know exactly how many sisters you've got. Wow. What was it like talking to him again? We talked for about a couple of hours. And we talked about everything and anything. And we laced the whole thing with mummy, mummy, mummy and mummy. And in the end, he said... Now, my mother had this thing about a room. She used to talk about having a special room, that your bedroom was your special room and you have it how you want it and if you want the bed here and how can we do this. And we had her homemade quilts on the bed, homemade quilts and things on the bed. I mean, she was keen that we had our space as we would like it. And she used to talk to us about... She used to ask us, if you had a great big room the size of your school classroom, what would you do with it? And I still 
fantasise about a room today. I would love to live in one room that was big enough if it didn't smell of cooking and stuff like that, you know, and have a shower in one corner. And I like bedsits, only big ones. <laughs> and he said to me, describe to me the room you're in. I said, wow, that takes me back. He said, yes, I want to know all about the room that you're sitting in right now. And it was just on manner. So you us. both picked up where you'd left off. It was like you'd never stopped talking. I talked him round the room <clears throat> and I talked him round the photographs. Now, my ex-husband uh, was a keen amateur photographer and we got loads of the negatives from another aunt to um, do up for her and we'd given her loads of photographs and we had loads of photographs of my mother and all those photographs that you see everywhere of John and my mother and John in the garden with Julian. They're all ours, all of them. You know, when I see Len Ono, I just laugh. You know, she can come for me if she likes. They're not her photographs. Where was she when they were taken? We had them years ago mm. as negatives, right? So, um, my ex had blown up this particular photograph that you see with my mother in a flower dress. She's very pregnant. It was in August and Jackie was born in October. She's pregnant with my sister. With her arms around John. And John's doing that, like clicking his fingers and grinning. And there's a beautiful picture of my mother. And I'd asked Alan to blow it up as much as he possibly could. So he put four 20 by 16 sheets together. You see, I know the technical, technical stuff because the bathroom was turned over to a, a dark room on a regular basis. And he put the four together and he divided it into four. Very clever because we didn't have any technical equipment. He was just doing it in the bath with chemicals. <coughs> And it was on the wall as one picture. And I'd actually cut John out of it. I didn't want John on it. I only wanted my mother. And I said, I've got that picture. Send it to me. Send it to me. What other pictures have you got? So I talked to him. Send them all. I want them all. I want them all. I said, John, you've got everything. He said, Julia, I've got nothing. Really? That's amazing. I'm talking to Julia Bebb. And we've got this incredible book. Uh, imagine this. Uh, Julia's um, John Lennon's sister. With the Beatles' incredible fame, then nothing, nobody will ever, ever be as big as the Beatles. End of story. There's, no, there's just no argument. Did the press leave you alone over the years, or did they keep yes. hounding you all the time? No, well, no. <coughs> I mean, they hound any of us if we put ourselves in the public eye, and I right. accept that completely. There's no problem. Um, I've just been reading while I was waiting for you there's a little article in either the Express or the Mail the two papers you have downstairs about a, a lady who went to see them all just went and called on their houses and John had said to her um, it's thanks to people like you that I live in this nice big house well he's right absolutely right um, and George said and I've quoted it in here without the fans we're nothing they, they have made us mm. who we are. And he was absolutely right. So the press, the, the press never pestered you? Yes. But nobody's been completely outrageously overboard. I haven't put myself out there singing and dancing and they haven't intruded on me. And what stopped you putting yourself out there? Because, as you know, with famous people, a lot of people jump in on the bandwagon. Why, why did you never do it? I have my own life. Um... I'm, no one could be prouder, prouder 
than me of John to be John's sister. I think he is the genius that he said he was. And there was certainly only one genius in that group of four, and it was John. Um, John, to me, is the essence of the Beatles. Although they were a team, and John and Paul, I called them in the book the dream team, um, without John, he was the driving force. This is, I'm thinking, other people will disagree, but this is, these are my thoughts. So, um, and we're naturally under John's umbrella, whether we want to be or not, because we're his sisters. Were you a fan of the Beatles? I preferred the Rolling Stones. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I can be honest with you, so did I. Now, isn't that amazing? Because I loved Mick Jagger's energy. Now, me there too, we are. Too. And they came to Liverpool and they played yeah, at the Odeon them. Cinema and the Everly Brothers were starring. They were supporting. That was the first time I ever saw them. Oh, well, I saw them at the Empire. Should we change the programme? Yeah, let's. <laughs> now, that's, that's interesting. But you, you've got to be honest. And I love your honesty. And I think all the people have got to be honest. I mean... They, the the Beatles are a phenomenon. There's yeah. nothing in the world, nothing can take that. So whatever we say will never detract from what they are and who they are. Did you, were you a fan of the Cavern? Did you go to the music scene? Were you on the music no, scene? No, no, I wasn't on the music scene. I didn't see um, the show that was terrible to miss, you know, the last one in... 1960, whenever it was, they played at the Cavern. So you went to teenager queuing outside? Um, I couldn't get in a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> did you never use his name to get in? No, no, I didn't. I mean, I did go to the Cavern, but I didn't ever see the Beatles at the Cavern. No. Interesting. Yeah. What what groups do you remember from those days? Do you oh, remember? The Searchers, the Swinging Blue Jeans, Jerry and the Pacemakers... Mm -hmm. You'd have to say them, and I'd have to agree with yeah. them. Talking to your family over the years, did you ever in your wildest dreams, or did any of you in the family in your wildest dreams ever imagine that John could become who he was? I know he said he was going to be successful, but this big? Could... No, no, no. And as enduring as this, absolutely not. No. It's amazing that, isn't it, you say that enduring... Isn't it incredible the way new generations discover the music over and over, over and, and over, over again. again? And if you go to places now, conventions or anything to do with the Beatles, you find six-year-olds singing along with the song, and as long as that's going to happen, then it will go on. Did you ever go out with them as a group? Did you ever? Yes. Yeah. 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 What was the What was the relationship like with them, really? What, uh, bantering, they, yeah. good and bantering. When we were there, <clears throat> it was now talking about naivety again. We went to um, Jackie and I went to my sister and I went to Finsbury Park Astoria in London, and I, I've put it in here because, again, a naivety. We'd seen them here in Liverpool. We'd seen them several times at the Empire. We'd been at the Hard Day's Night. Um, premier in Liverpool as well and this was big like John had moved to London he wanted us to see the house and we went down and um, while we were there this concert was on it was arranged that we should go and we went with Cynthia and there were four seats free four rows free at the front now this hadn't happened in the Empire so there were four rows free and I'd said that we were in the dressing room with the Rolling Stones. They were all in. They're all patting each other on the back and good-looking and break a leg and stuff like that. And they're all drinking what I thought was Coca-Cola. Now, this is... 
I think I was drinking Coca-Cola. Your naivety is really coming over loud and clear cannot, on this one. Go on. I what were they drinking? Tell you. What were they whiskey, drinking? Whiskey, whiskey. <laughs> oh, right. No. So I'm arguing with John like mad uh, because they'd given us a seat and it was like halfway back. And I said, we are, we're not sitting there. We're not sitting there. I'm spokesman for me and my sister. You know. Yes, you are. No, 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 no. no. <clears throat> No, I want to sit in the front. You can't sit in the front. I want to sit in the front. You can't sit in the front. Anyway, eventually I won. And we get out there and we sit in the third row. So there's one, two, three, four rows empty. Jackie and I are in the third row just at the end. The curtain comes up and immediately all these girls, I'm saying girls, it could be boys or as well, come running down to the front. I, I mean, this had not happened in Liverpool. People had jumped up and down and shouted and screamed. And, and that's why he didn't want you at the front. Yeah. And he'd said, no, 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 no. And he's looking down there. You can see him looking down. And I, I mean, I could tell you so many stories. He's wearing contact lenses and the, the lights are just burning into his eyes. That's why he gave up in the end. Because he bought them for him and me. I wear them. He, we got them at the same time at the contact lens clinic here in Liverpool. But he just couldn't tolerate the strong yeah. lights. right? So that's why he did all this. So he's like, like that. And he get the girls. <laughs> so we were hauled on our stomachs across the side of the stage into the wings. And he turned around and said, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> so we watched the rest of the concert, not from the front, but from the wings. Which was better. Actually. Which was much better. Which was far better. Yeah. Um, tell me, were you a Pete Best fan? I like Pete Best enormously. Mm, so did I. Yeah. I was one of those campaigning outside to get rid of Ringo. Oh, and... right. I've got some good news for you. He's headlining at the Beatles Festival this year, Philharmonic, on the Saturday night. Pete no, Best is playing. Couldn't yeah. think of anybody better. Good news. Couldn't think you know, of anybody me, better. Me neither. Was John a happy man or was he a troubled soul? I think he was troubled. He Always? No, he had bouts of happiness. Of course he did. I think... He was extremely happy with Cynthia. He was in love with Cynthia, you know. And, and, I liked Cynthia. You know, no, but he was—he loved her. She was his Bridget Bardo. Uh, he certainly fancied her. I can tell you that because you could, even as youngsters, we knew, you know, that they were an item. Um, and there's no doubt that meeting Yoko again made him happy. There was something in these women that gave him great happiness. We all have, happiness is a fleeting thing, isn't it? Anyone who, of us who thinks we walk around in on a fluffy pink cloud, um, well, I wish I knew somebody like that. How is he as a father? What do you think? You tell me. But was there a hidden agenda? Well, how do you mean? I don't know. I, I just wonder, I, I had a bad father. I, I just wonder if there's something behind it. If you're, you know, if, if, you're, if you're being manipulated, if you, I don't know. People have different, I haven't got children, so yeah. I, I don't know. I'm curious. Well, John's own father had been brought up in the blue coat um, from the age of five. And although he saw his mother, their father had died and two, uh, Alf and baby Edith, were taken in by the orphanage because mum just couldn't cope with all the children. And that was, as I say, from the age of five. And then Alf sort of disappeared from John's life also at the age of five. And then you know what I'm going to say. Mm. At the age of five, 
John disappeared from Julian's life and died when Sean was five. I mean, it's just totally uncanny to me. I'm sure people can make things of it, but what is strange is that John knew how he had been affected by Alf's disappearance and why he was so willing not to not to get divorced, not to want to get married again. That happens. I mean, that's that's life, and that happens. That but that he he did abandon Julian at that time, and Julian's made no bones about it, has he? And John himself said, "I shouldn't have done this," and that's why. Uh, and it was a brilliant thing that when he did go to Los Angeles, one of the first things he did was to get in touch with Julian. He wasn't he wasn't a good father at that stage, but in the in the time that he was with Cynthia, you couldn't say I couldn't say that he wasn't a good father because he was think of a businessman who's travelling all around the world that is providing for his family as John was doing. Um, they can't be at home all the time, can they? The abandonment with Julian started when he actually left, when he left Cynthia. Could take could John take criticism? For instance, when he was making mistakes, could you ring him up and say, you're wrong? I could have rang Henry VIII more easily than him. <laughs> <laughs> so it was always difficult to get hold of him? Until he got back in touch yeah. and that, yeah, yeah. Was that frustrating, that? It could be. Yeah, I mean, you got used to it in the end, but it wasn't a nice thing to have to get used to. So it's weird, isn't it, when you mm. think of it? All of a sudden, uh, he becomes this legend and has to protect himself. Yeah, but, but from all the wrong people. He protected yeah. himself from the wrong people. And all these sycophantic people around him, which, yeah. you know, is, is the most irritating thing in show business. But which... as a genius, he should have seen past that, I think. I did actually go into um, um, the Apple offices in Savile Row, when I was staying with my cousin in London, she was actually um, living in a Beetle flat. She'd come back from Germany and she was a doctor and she was getting her own place together and she lived there for a time and I moved in with her to help with the children. And I took the youngest one. This is before I, I was married, but I didn't have my own children then. And I thought, oh, Robert and I, you and I have an outing today. He's in a pushchair. We'll go and see John. And I went in to the offices and... Uh, said, you know, I knew that John was there. I thought that John was there. Bits are in the papers, aren't they? And they just said, who are you? And I said, well, I'm John's sister. John hasn't got any sisters. And I said, he has. I am John's sister. They said, John doesn't have any sisters. And anyway, he's not here. So I was really embarrassed. And I walked out and thought, well, I'm not going to do that again. When we talked about it, he said, I was upstairs. I, was, I would have been up there. I said, I know, John, but if you have... And this is just. But yeah, but these people are trying to justify their job as well. Oh, they say, no. you know, I've, I've, I mean, I've been around show business for forty years, yeah. and I've seen it all, and I, I know exactly what you mean. And and you said, but I tried to get hold of you. I was only there. Yes. It's these people that keep people at bay. Exactly. And and just then they hear what they want to hear, mm. which is annoying. When did you speak to John? What was the last time you spoke to him when he was alive? About nineteen seventy-seven. It Long? might have even been seventy-eight, seventy-seven for sure. Because the, the phone calls weren't so thick and fast. And again, this is all in the book. I was trying to ring him. Um, Julian was trying to ring him. And eventually it was Yoko that picked the phone up all the time. And I've actually said in the book, was she walking around with the phone in her pocket? 
Interesting. Mm. What relationship did you have with yoga? Uh, or do you have with yoga? Well... Or is it non-existent? You can't say it's non-existent because we've met. Um, it's a tolerant relationship, if you put it that way. Um, I think she very much resented John being back in touch with Julian and me and Jackie and David and Michael and Stan and Leela. John wanted to be in touch with all his family again and was writing to us and phoning us. And she so didn't like this. She was in I control. Don't think, I don't think she liked it. Mm. Um, but when we met at Mimi's funeral, Mimi died in 1991. And of course, we all went to the funeral. And before Mimi and Cynthia had had not a particularly terrific relationship, but they certainly had one. They'd lived together. It's in her book, if you read it, if you read her book, John. Um, so I phoned Cynthia in the Isle of Man and said, Cynthia, I want you to know that Mimi is very not well now, and I don't think she's got long to live. If you want to see her or speak to her, she said, please give me her phone number, which I did. And they did actually speak. Um... And Mimi was pleased to hear from her. Now, Mimi had gone off down to Bournemouth to live, and I was toing and froing all the time. Um, just sitting with her, making her tea in the night. She had round-the-clock nursing then. I used to send the nurses home for a long time and uh, do things that they wouldn't do, like put her in a hot soapy bath, which she loved. And I'd just sit reading and chatting to her, and we'd sit drinking tea, and I'd just keep topping up her hot water for half an hour and she just loved it. And the nurses wouldn't do it. You know, they washed her, but they, they weren't going to do that sort of indulgence. And um, Mimi died in 1991 and Cynthia came over from the Isle of Man, came to pick me up. We both went to London and went on to Bournemouth together to the funeral. And Yoko was there with a coterie of people and Sean, we were delighted to meet Sean. I say meet Sean, he was 16, we were meeting him. I'd seen him on stage here in Liverpool when he was about 14 or 15, but now we were meeting him. And uh, I told him how handsome he was and how proud John would have been of him, and it was true. And he looked absolutely just stunning, you know, it was really nice to meet him. But they had these, like, minders, and it was so strange in Mimi's house, you know. And after the funeral, we went back to the... No, before the funeral, after the funeral, after the funeral, we went back to the house and we were sitting chatting. It turned out that Yoko had already sold the house. Um, yes, Which we didn't know. We weren't being naive here. We just mm. didn't know the house had already been sold, signed, sealed and delivered. And guess what? It was knocked down. So I wonder, was that part of the deal as well? Mm. Knocked down, uh, complete rebuild. And we were talking about not being able to get in touch with John, and Yoko was there. Now, she's not there in New York. She's there with John's Liverpool family now. And I said, well, we were trying to get in touch with him, and we could never get through on the phone. And she said, it was my job to protect John from phone calls, but not from phone calls, to protect John. And I said, what, from his sister's? And she looked and said, oh, well, I didn't know. What's your opinion of her? She's very insecure, isn't she? And obviously got vast recognition through being with John. Now, I don't think anyone can deny that. Well, I certainly won't. No. 
the only person who thinks that she would have been a worldwide famous, a world famous conceptual artist without John is Yoko. I can't take it serious. I tell you for why. The two, was it called the Two Virgins album with them uh, both naked yeah. on the front? Yeah, Mimi said, if I looked like that, I'd put I've my clothes on. I've never seen a bottom. <laughs> I've never seen a bottom that starts and finishes at an ankle. I was, I've still got it at home, but I can't look at it. <laughs> Simple as that. Um, where were you when you were told your brother had been killed? Oh, let's not talk about this. I don't want to talk about this. You, no. Not at all. It's still that painful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are the happiest memories you've got? Uh, if you're talking about John, then I have to go back to my mother. I have to have to go back to my mother. I don't think anyone else would realise how inextricably bound up to my sister and I, to Jackie and I, John and my mother are. They're almost, they've almost melded into one person because we've lost both of them and because they adored each other and because our younger lives were my mother desperately wanting John and, my, and John desperately wanting my mother with uh, Mimi in the middle. And we, I've written about it, you can read about it, we were living in it. And we we know the truth of all this. And as I said, if you read the book, it's all in there. Um, now, you're asking me to talk about the day that John died, which I'm sorry, but I can't. Again, I could write it, and it's here. There's um, a memorial going up, and Cynthia and Julian are doing it in Shavas Park on John's birthday. And I've been asked, would I please go along? Um, and be there, and Jackie, and the answer is absolutely no. Don't you? Does nobody understand? And I don't think they do. They say they do, but they don't. You see, I suppose the problem is because, and I mean this with the greatest respect, he was public property in the end. Yeah. It's. But they have to. I understand. No, but I understand you completely. But it must be terrible to have to grieve. And I can't, yeah, yeah. And, and, and publicly, yeah, to sit yeah, out there yeah, in the yeah. park and, and, and fight and back sing your happy tears over, yeah, to my yeah, brother. Are yeah, they mad? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally understand where you're coming from, but this is the problem. You lived under the shadow of an absolute icon. Yes, I know. You know, you and the family have lived, and anybody that's touched John's life have lived yeah. under this shadow, yeah, yeah. which is now larger than life, yes, which is yeah. now bigger. Yeah. And getting towards, what was it he said? I'm bigger than God. It's getting up that yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> well, as I say, we can we can be open for all the flack, if you like. And, um, you know, but something like this yeah. three months coming up. Three months? Oh, for God's sake, please spare us. Have you given a thought? When John did die, I'll tell you one thing that Mick Jagger said. Close to tears now. And that was... Can you leave this alone? John has a family. And I thought, oh, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. If you were on a desert island, this is the hardest question you're going to be at. Oh, you're going to go straight away. One of his songs, only one, which one would it be? Stand By Me. Ah. It's not his song. No. But it's John's own favourite song. And I have, I've got a fair amount of rogue 
music. And I've got John recording it time and time again and stopping and having another go and stopping and having another go. And he said, I'll never get it like Benny King. And Benny King said, John's version is a better one than mine. <laughs> I love it. And it's a great song. Fun... Great, great yeah, song. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Um, have you got lots of memorabilia? Have you got lots of personal stuff that's private? No, no, I haven't. No, I haven't got a lot. I haven't got a lot. Um, I do have a few things. and I've got photographs and stuff like that, but... Um... No, as I say, roguey music, but then, yeah. you know, loads of people have oh, it. Yeah, yeah. Loads of people have it. What do you want people to take from this this book? What, what, what do you want when I people have read it? read it, yeah. please. Just read Why it. is it so important to read it? Because it's the truth. Because I've actually been kinder than I might have been in here. If you read it, you will understand John. If anyone wants to understand John, I do really mean this. You will get a far better grip on his soul, if you like, on his psyche from reading this book. You will know why he made certain songs at certain times. What is it you miss about him? I mean, apart from the fact he's your brother. Everything. Yeah. Everything. And I miss the mother element in him. He was the older brother. So Jackie and I almost plastered our mother right onto him. If he was still alive, what do you think he'd be doing now? Would he, be, would he still be... Hopefully living back in England. Would he still be angry? No, I think he was coming to terms, starting over. I think he was coming to terms with things, and he was coming, you know, we were expecting him. He was coming in the January, and it's been, it's been recorded. It's on the Bob Harris show, and hello, Liverpool, I'm coming. He'd phoned my aunt, the one that talked to me endlessly, um, he'd phoned her, her birthday is November the 17th, and in 1980 he'd phoned her on November the 17th, happy birthday, and I'm coming over, and we'll all have to meet at yours. She had a huge house over the water. We'll all have to meet at yours at first, because it's the only place we can all fit in. And that's what was happening. In your opinion, did Yoko split the Beatles, or was it no, Linda? No, or was no. it Linda? No, Linda! <laughs> Are you joking? <laughs> Or Maureen, or come on. <laughs> Yoko didn't split the Beatles. She might have been a catalyst to make it happen a bit faster. But um, if, again, read the book, you'll find out when John said there'll be no more She Loves Yous, they couldn't have gone on doing it. What's your opinion of Paul? He's a very good fellow to me. He's always been very, very kind to me. Um, he's been left by default, as the world's mega, foremost, number one pop star, particularly since we've no longer got Michael Jackson. Um, Paul is now very affectionately known as Macca and uh, will always have a place in Liverpool. He's forged his career everywhere. He doesn't need to sing another song or another note ever. He gets off on his audience and his audience gets, gets off on him and I've been down here at the Albert Dock and they're mega shows. He, he produces an atmosphere that you just want to be in. He's brilliant fun. Do you know what I miss most? <clears throat> and I'm glad to say I grew through it. Uh, and the youngsters who have discovered the Beatles and discovered John and discovered all the lads, 
will never taste that raw music. Yes. When it was, that's yeah. the test. Yeah. yeah. Your mic's on, get on and do it. Yes. That was raw. Yeah. And that's where they came into their own. Exactly. That's where they were alive on stage. That's it. absolutely right. And if you, the Hamburg years, of course, and... Um, I know that I won't be the only one to have these, but the BBC tapes, you know, the, um, Pop Goes the Weasel and all that. I've got 14 cassettes that Mark Lewisham gave to me when I did an interview years ago for uh, the Beatles, Lost Beatles at the Beats tapes. Many people have it. Well, I, I'm friendly with Mal Holmes of um, OMD and he's got his own studio, so I gave them all to him. I said, Mal, I don't want any of the talk. I've still got all, got all that on cassette. It's hysterically funny. You know, they go to New York and Ringo says, there's Santa's fall in the zines and we can all get him one. <laughs> He's just rollicking, laughing. And they remained loyal to the fans right the way through. Um, I, They've done all the Chuck Berry, uh, Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, Long Tall Sally, you name it, and they've sung it. And Mal has reduced it, lasered it for me, onto six CDs. And it's just non-stop without any of the chat or any of one to the next, to the next, to the next. And it's as raw as it comes. Absolutely fantastic. How long has this book been a book? This? Mm. Oh, six. I retired in 04 to write it. Did it myself. No ghostwriter. Um, it was published in 06. Then the paperback in 07. And how long have you been threatening to do the book? How long has it been in your mind going, I've got to do it, I've got to get it out, I've got to get it out? Mm, well, the, the <coughs> reason I actually did it, because I'd got all the story from my aunt, the one that John had phoned, and I was still at work, and Cynthia and I were actually going to do a book together, and we talked about it. Now, I was still at full-time work. I worked in school psychology, and uh, with I worked as an EBD teacher, emotional and behavioural difficulties. So with difficult children, I adored them, but it was very strenuous. And I would come home absolutely blitzed sometimes. And then to start researching the book afterwards. Now, Cynthia had just moved from France to Mallorca when we decided to write it, uh, to go for it together, to rewrite now what we knew. And... Um, I was researching and Cynthia was moving and redoing a house. And we just couldn't get it done. And in the end, we decided that we'd do it separately. So Cynthia did John first and I followed with this, but I, I retired to do mine. It was the only way I could do it. How long did it take you to get the title, imagine this? About a nanosecond. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and the Americans changed the title, which I thought was Absolutely. I said, don't change the title. They've made it The Private Lives of John Lennon. I said, why um, have you done that? That will get lost on all the shows. I will never understand why anybody changes anything. If somebody writes something, then it's from here. They've and now said to me, we should have listened to you. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Let's finish by saying, uh, first of all, uh, it's been an incredible journey. Uh, and I... I'm blown away that you, you spent so much time with me and I'm, I'm thrilled. The book's here. The book is on sale. This is Julia Bird and it is called Imagine This. What do you want people, apart from the music, to remember John by? 
Well, it's what he, it's the message from the music, isn't it? It's the peace message from the music, and that's what we repeatedly come back to with from "Give Peace a Chance" to um, uh, "The War Is Over" and all the peaceful records that he made until at the end his the very last solo song was grow old with me wasn't wasn't it you know he's sort of moving into a different almost pipe and slippers era by this stage but i think the peace message is the message for me that um john was privileged enough to be able to stand up and um pronounce on peace and i think if john had lived we wouldn't have had Bob Geldof or um, um, Bono. It would have been John, wouldn't it, doing these things? His gap has left space for more than the two of them, but I think he would have been doing this. Will there ever be another John Lennon? No. No. Will there ever be another Elvis? No. And there certainly won't be another Mick Jagger. Absolutely <laughs> not. Julian. He's making sure that he goes on forever. Oh, he's going to die on stage. He's going to die on stage <laughs> without any shadow of a doubt. Julia, thank you so much for spending time with me. The best of Pete Price on Radio City 96.7 and City Talk 105.9.